Good morning to everybody. I'm uh, glad that you are here. Uh, I'm John Norwood, ceasefire, and glad you, that you got in this big old foggy, wet morning out there and came out here. Um, I've got a um, song. I know y'all like me to sing most mornings. Well, uh, have y'all ever heard of a song? Do we? Have y'all ever heard of a song called Hottie Toddy? Uh. It goes like this. No, no, I do have an announcement. I, I, what, I, just, I was going to make a nice announcement about uh, the Ole Miss Tennessee game uh, this last weekend. But y'all, I realized Phil is a very diehard Tennessee fan. We might get mustard bottles, no, no, uh, <laughs> golf balls. Uh, <laughs> wait, 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 look at that. <laughs> there, see, uh, what the heck is that? There's my brother here. No, I won't, I won't say anything about the old Miss Tennessee game. I mean, had that in his pocket. I remember one year they made Mr. Jimmy sing Rocky Talk. When he, and now I think we need to just bludgeon you with these golf balls. <laughs> anyway, what I do, I'm sitting up there, I say, Hotty Toddy, Jesus Christ is Lord, praise the King. I have a different Hotty Toddy that day sometimes. So. <laughs> Welcome. Uh, we're glad you're here. I'm calling for Joe today, and I'm so glad you're here. Um, what a great series, and I am um, going to uh, open in prayer. Let me tell you something. we got a big meeting after this, and I have to ask a very... Um, uh, we don't have to ask this often, but occasionally we have to ask you to kind of bamoose out of here as quickly as you can because we got to get it set up. It's a huge meeting. What is it, Jeff? Uh, the state of Mississippi. The state of Mississippi? The whole state's coming in here? The ones that are important. The state of Mississippi. The state of Mississippi's coming in here, so y'all keep your seats warm and uh, we'll get them in here, but uh, please kind of do that. But thanks for coming. Get you a cup of coffee and uh, get you some popcorn and uh, enjoy the movie. Somebody said something like that. I don't know what it is. Anyway, let's pray. Dear Lord, we just love you and praise you. Uh, you are our king and our Lord, our sovereign, and you're over all things. Um, Lord, you, you uh, rule and reign. And I thank you for these men. I thank you, Father, for... Uh, the emphasis uh, that we've had, I think, of the scripture that's John the Baptist, I believe it was, who said, uh, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And, and we, have, we, we can be no more, no nobler, no, no more uh, regal, no more focused and, uh, in your will than when we uh, glance at our Savior. The Lord Jesus, uh, the Lamb of God, and I thank you for Phil and Roan who have taken us there and uh, helped us to see the true Savior, our King, who is uh, mighty and powerful and gracious and loving. And Lord, just pray you bless uh, bless them uh, in their uh, life and ministry. Bless the dear camp this weekend. I pray you bless each of these men who have carved out time from their busy schedules to come and to. Uh, fellowship with other guys and to uh, just get their day started under the Word of God. And I pray you'd, you'd bless them and uh, bless their families. And, and uh, we ask all this now uh, as we learn, and not for academic stimulation, but for heart transformation to your glorious name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Thank you, John. So guys, as, uh, as we get started, um, um, I would I would like to uh, acknowledge that they um, they found the guy who threw the golf ball. 
Saturday. Um, Jeff, you can pull that up. Okay, here we go. And, um, you know, it's been a lot of talk. Who in the world brings a golf ball to a football game? And, and uh, this is, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the, the uh, uh, celebrity uh, that is such a Tennessee fan uh, that he just happened to have a golf ball in his pocket. Wearing that orange, no pants. So, you know, he's, he's repented. And he promises never to do that again until the next football game. <laughs> Phil, your mic's upside down. My mic is upside down. There we go. Story of your life. <laughs> <laughs> That's just another reason that I'm a Tennessee fan. Some people drop the mic. This is the dude. This is, is a left-handed mic. I don't know. <laughs> I wanted a right-handed mic. There we go. All right. Is that better? Yeah, we'll go with it. Send it to your chest hair. There you go. Ow! Ow! All right, we ready? Ready. All right, gentlemen, I have a song for you this morning that um, my prayer is is that it'll open our hearts um, to what God has for us this morning. What we're looking at uh, the morning, uh, this morning in relationship to our series on Marine Jesus is freedom, a scandalous freedom. And uh, Zach Williams has a great song, No Longer Slaves. In other words, I am free, I'm free, I'm free. What's so cool about the setting um, is um, this is a live performance um, that Zach Williams did at Harding uh, prison, Harden with a G, Harding Prison in Nashville, Tennessee. And uh, I love the words to the song. It's very powerful. But the visual of seeing a song like this to a bunch of prisoners is just powerful. And we are that. We are that apart from Jesus. May you hear the voice of God as we listen to No Longer Slaves. I'm no longer a slave to fear. Oh, I am a child of God. Oh, I'm no longer a slave to fear. Oh, I am a child of God. You are the melody and you surround me with a song of deliverance from my enemies until all
continue to um, enjoy that song. Um, I would encourage you to pull that up. The, the link is, is there. Uh, enjoy the words. Uh, the visual of, of that is so powerful. You know, men who are incarcerated experiencing the freedom of Jesus. Um, and I trust this morning that God will do uh, will free us from whatever enslaves us. Uh, he has come to set us free. Be on the alert. Stand firm in your faith. Act like men. Be strong. Words from 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Let's continue in our series, Marine Jesus. Follow with me as we read our introductory paragraph there on your notes. Marine Jesus, he is with you always, just like your rifle, quote unquote. Simplify, always faithful. To be a Marine means a daily commitment to live up to the highest standards. Being a Marine means to be ever accountable to the warrior ethos, which adheres to these fundamental truths. Character counts, honesty is incorruptible, and integrity means everything. We need our Christian commitment to be more Marine-like than what our culture has made Christian men to be. Sad. Jesus modeled a warrior-like character, and when we discover his true character, we uncover the real Jesus. The true knowledge of Jesus is our greatest need and our greatest happiness. This study will help us to be the men God designed us to be, men willing to initiate, take responsibility, and to fight for a cause greater than ourselves. Simplify. Guys, I have mentioned to you uh, Lieutenant General uh, Jerry Boykin, and I want to show you just a, a brief clip of him um, so that he will become a resource for you. Written numerous books, Godly man, uh, was part of the original uh, Army Rangers in the mid-70s when they started that. And he has led numerous battles uh, um, and has been an advocate uh, for our military for many years, and more importantly, an advocate uh, for the Lord Jesus. You know, um, enjoy a few minutes of Lieutenant General Jerry Boykin. It's unbelievable that the families are disintegrating and what's that doing is destroying our society because men are not stepping up. Men are, men are seeing themselves as sperm donors. And you know that uh, the University of Texas, now think about this, University of Texas, the Department of Psychology just declared that masculinity was a mental disorder. Did anybody in here see that? That was out about six weeks ago. You saw that? A mental disorder, masculinity is a mental disorder. We're being told that there's no difference between a man and a woman. And by the way, if you don't like being a man, you can be a woman. And the only difference is your plumbing, but you can change that too. Think about it. I mean, there is an assault on masculinity. There's an assault on manhood. That's one of the reasons that we got so much, so much PTSD in our troops that are coming back from the battlefield because they find out that they actually enjoyed it there. Oh, it's frightening. And there are times when you'd, you'd rather be anywhere else, but at the end, when you look back on it, it was a good time. And then they come back to a society that says, you're not supposed to feel that way. You're not supposed to feel that way. You're not supposed to want to be in war. What do you mean you're not supposed to want to be in war? Men come out of the womb wanting to be at war. 
They want to prove themselves. And we better get, come to grips with the reality of that. So I call this the five P's of manhood. The first P, as a man, you are the protector. You, uh, you protect your family from more than just physical harm. You protect your family from the evil. You know, you can call me a crazy, uh, and I am a Pentecostal, so I, you know, but you can call me a crazy Pentecostal if you want to. But when I move into a new home, I go and anoint every phone line, every cable, every window, every door. I anoint it with oil, and I pray and say, don't let any evil in my home. You're the protector. Men, dads, you're the protector. You protect your, your family from evil. You protect them from what comes into that home on the Internet and on the TV and the computers. And you better have some blocks on those computers if you've got children in the home because it's so prolific today. You also try to protect them from making bad choices. And it doesn't matter if you made the wrong choice when you were coming up. And by the way, dads, you don't have to share everything you did with your children. I've got a cousin, my wife's cousin actually, that he was a hardcore drug user when he was coming up. And he thinks that it's cool because he's a faithful Christian now. But he thinks it's cool to tell his children about all the drugs that he did. Well, so what's going through their mind at a very formative age? Their mind is, well, you turned out okay. I can experiment with it. I can play with it now a little bit. No. Protect them. Don't tell them everything you did because it does not uh, turn out the way you hoped that it would. But you're the protector. Now, I, I'm just going to tell you, I believe in the Second Amendment. In fact, I believe the Second Amendment is biblical. When Jesus says to his disciples, if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one, that was the, that was the beginning of the Second Amendment. And if you don't own a, if you don't own a gun, it's sinful. You're sinful. Get yourself a gun. Okay? <laughs> but I'm the protector. I'm gone a lot. I travel a lot, and my wife is at home a lot by herself. But I still have the responsibility to protect her. So what I did is I got the best security system that money could buy. It goes right to the sheriff's office if anybody breaches it. And then um, I looked the other day. No kidding. This is no joke. She's got five guns in the bedroom. Five guns in the bedroom. One of them's a sawed-off shotgun, and she practices one step, and she's got that sawed-off shotgun in her hand, and she's got a dog with a nasty attitude in that bedroom. <laughs> I'm going to tell you something. If I'm going to be real late, I call her ahead of time. <laughs> you don't want to go in my house, but it's still my responsibility to protect my wife, but you protect them. Protect them from making those bad choices. And remember this, too. For you younger dads, you're not a friend at the expense of being the father and being the authority. And too many, too many fathers want to be their, their child's friend first. There's nothing wrong with being their friend, but that's not your first obligation. Your first obligation is to be the authority that can say no to them. And you got to learn to say no to them. And when you see them doing something, playing these demonic video games, and all of them are not demonic. That's not what I'm saying. But there are some that are. And if you don't think so, just right here in Colorado, find out what Dylan Klebold and, and his buddy were doing when they, before they went over and shot up Columbine High School. They were watching demonic video games.
you're the protector. Marine Jesus. Marine Jesus. I trust you'll watch the rest of that and read all of his books and uh, utilize uh, uh, his witness and his testimony uh, as a resource uh, in your own uh, growth. So pick up a pen. Let's go to work. Let's engage. A scandalous freedom is what we're looking at this morning. Question number one that I want you to interact with is what inhibits you or prohibits you from being free? What seems to enslave you, bind you up, keep you full of anxiety? What do you worry about? What are you afraid of? Write that down. Acknowledge it. I am enslaved. I am a slave too. You know, in my counseling office, I would I would say that what I see emotionally um, that so many are enslaved to is shame and fear. Think about how shame, things that you're afraid somebody's going to uh, find out about, enslaves you. Shame about your past, if they only knew, if they only knew. Out of context, you know, if you knew out of context, all about me, you probably wouldn't even come. But I'd like to think that the context is, yeah, I did that, and I actually did more than you even know about. But I've been forgiven, and I've acknowledged it through the blood of Jesus. And I'm up here to make you feel better about Phil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you ought to hear his story, right? Exactly. So question number two, in what way are you rigid or judgmental? Now, now, now that's like asking if you've got a booger on your nose in some ways. You got a booger on your nose? You don't know until somebody tells you. But it's really important that you consider that. Am I rigid or judgmental? Because judgmentalness or being um, a, a judgment is one of the uh, primary killers of intimacy <clears throat> that your children or your wife experience you as judgmental now again i've never met a judgmental or rigid person that saw themselves that way never you know he's got a booger on the end of his nose but I would, I would uh, challenge you uh, to ask those that love you, um, in what way? Don't, don't ask, am I rigid? Ask, in what way do you experience me as rigid? You know, you may be good about what's served for dinner, but every time you get into a conversation about finances in the budget, it breaks into a, a all-out war because of your rigidity. Doesn't mean that you don't need to have a budget, but, but you've got to figure out a way, if you're going to have a budget, to talk to your wife. She probably sees it different. We can, you know, we can go through a hundred topics like that. 
and we talk about you know three things that kill intimacy, kill relationship, secrets, silence, and judgment. And boy, that judgment thing comes in a lot of different ways. Um, we certainly can be judgmental. Um, one of the things that we will do um, in our couples intensives that we do is when we're kind of setting the guidelines uh, that's one of the things that people will say that they want is no judgment well we tweak it a little bit and we just say how about no speaking of judgment no speaking judgment because we're all judgmental and the worst way of being judgmental is how we often judge ourselves and that's certainly one of the reasons Jesus came when we talk about freedom is that freedom from judging ourselves because we have one judge and Jesus is the judge. So third question to consider, what would others like you to be or to do to be a better lover? What would others ask of you to be a better lover? Um, you know, one of the aspects of being free in, in Jesus is that we become better lovers. So if, if we call ourselves Jesus followers uh, in a biblical way, then that would infer that we are ever growing in being better lovers, that we love better. So what would your wife like for you to do in order for her to be able to say, thank you, sweetheart, for being a better lover? You know, it, it's not 50 shades of gray, right? Because I know, you know, I know men and a lot of us are thinking, oh, I want to be a better lover. <laughs> and yeah, I'll watch that movie with my wife. And, and, you know, that's where we will go with this stuff. But this idea of love, it is is it it is often misunderstood the way that we think of love just oh just love others right all that kind of maybe bambi stuff but man love is hard love is a choice love confronts i mean go read the the love chapter and don't read it in church speak but read it in reality you know, love is not a feeling. Love is a verb, and it is an action. And to be a better lover, it takes a lot of intentionality to live with another species and to get along. That's difficult. And we all need to be constantly learning, I know I do, what it means to love my wife well. I'm still learning that, and I fail often. Amen. Monday morning, um, Carl and I had a, a really a, a special time. Um, we sat down. Uh, she had food poisoning all weekend. Um, you did it again. Yeah, I know it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I didn't think she'd get into that stuff, but, you know, she got into it. And uh, somehow I didn't get it. Figure that, you know. So she was sick all weekend, so I, she was just... Um, done her best to survive so we really didn't have a chance to talk very much so we sat down and had a just a great conversation uh, monday morning and, and 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 i told her i said you know um i just want to think out loud with you um 
and share some things that are going on with me. And I and I I'm, I have a really bad habit of carrying stuff and carrying stuff, and I don't share it. You know, I, I teach all this stuff, and yet you know, physician heal thyself. You know, and um, boy, without trying to fix a problem or blame her or somebody else, I just shared openly where I was uh, feeling anxious and scared and fearful and like a failure and all that. And, uh, you know, I kind of felt like a girl um, a little bit uh, having a conversation like that. Um, but it was really so helpful because she looked at me and she says, you know, um, thank you for not blaming me. Um, thank you for not trying to fix me or yourself. Thank you for just sharing openly what's going on with you. I feel closer to you. And, um, you know, one of the, the fundamental pieces of becoming a better lover and being free is to be open, um, stop all blame and criticism, and simply uh, acknowledge what's going on with you. Stop the blame and criticism and just acknowledge what's going on. But we as men, we want to fix it. And, and, and we really want it to be fixed oftentimes before we even share it. I mean, why would I want to share something that's a mess? You know, I want to fix it and then I'll share it. And so part of being free is just to be open and really acquire a taste for vulnerability. It is, it is, it is like, it is wonderful, but it's like a four-letter word. Exactly. You spell vulnerability <laughs> like a four-letter word. It's like, I'm not doing that, you know, but it's part of being free, free. So let's dig in. The scandalous freedom. Um, what do you do with the freedom of Jesus? Now, before we look at some of the passages of Jesus, let's tease this out, because um, Jesus' freedom is difficult to teach on for many reasons, and I just want to address two. First of all, uh, abusers. When we start talking about freedom, um, oftentimes um, we find those that ex uh, use uh, the freedom in Christ to live as they please. Um, and of course, Ro uh, Romans chapter six uh, digs into this really deep. So if you really want to get an idea of, uh, of even Paul addressing this, read Romans six, because he says, you know, you're free in Christ. And, and, and then he proposes the question, does that mean we get to do anything we want to do? And, and of course not. Many characters uh, in our irreverent age don't care what others think. Their freedom is abrasive and unholy. So it, it's not like we get to do anything um, that we want to. And so when we start talking about freedom in Christ, it makes a, a lot of people uh, nervous. Um, and um, one local church that I know of, a great book by Steve Brown, uh, which uh, his, his book uh, is entitled exactly what we've entitled our, our uh, session today, A Scandalous Freedom. If you want to read a great book, and I love Steve Brown, he, he wrote a book on a scandalous freedom. It's really uh, uh, the book of Romans, teased out Romans 6 and 7 and 8, 
And How was he still a Presbyterian? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was just going to say, I mean, I mean, uh, a church that I know of banned his book because they were afraid that uh, it, it would be antinomian. Now, that's a good theological word. Uh, antinomian means against the law, that it would be too grace-oriented and it would not be structured enough. And so they banned uh, Steve Brown's book from being sold. I think that's sad. It was a Baptist church. <laughs> um, because it's, it is a wonderful uh, treatment of this um, freedom that we do have in Christ and what the Apostle Paul is writing about in Romans. But we don't want to abuse it. And then uh, the second category, you know, that we've got are those that are fearful. Others will dismiss the freedom Jesus offers out of fear, either the fear of what people will think um, or falling into sin or immorality. It's like they're afraid, you know, you know, the old joke um, about uh, why do why do Baptists not drink? Well, they're afraid uh, if they drink, they'll start dancing. <laughs> and it's it's the idea of afraid of fear or of, uh, the fear that somehow things will get out of control. You know, it's interesting. Um, the Reformation came out of a fear by the church that if they let the scriptures be read by everybody, that there would be abuse of the scriptures. And the Reformation took place uh, with Martin Luther's um, leadership. Well, guess what happened? Exactly what the church was afraid of. There'd be all kinds of abuses of the scripture. But the good of you and I being able to have a Bible in our hands and we walk around it and we read it, is incredible because of the Reformation. So yeah, there's there's going to be abuses, absolutely. But if you have to have it so rigid and control it, then it won't grow. So there's always a balance in this freedom. And we're, it's a struggle. Um, it's a struggle. It's like we, uh, it's the balance between, we, we drift either to sin or we drift to legalism. And, and the balance is always you know, grace with truth. And, and it has to come out of an inward disposition, an internal transformation born out of love, where we certainly keep our lives in check because of the love that we have for Christ and what he did for us. But when we're doing it out of duty and obligation, then we drift to legalism. And if we don't have the love and the appreciation and the honor for Jesus, then we will naturally drift to sin. I think John Eldridge, just one of the quotes from the book, Beautiful Outlaw, uh, the more you fall in love with Jesus's genuine goodness, which is true goodness, the more you will absolutely detest the counterfeit of a false piety and shallow morality, as he did. Jesus has a wild freedom born out of a profound holiness, which makes him the most remarkable person I've ever known.
a profound holiness. So guys, this, um, this idea of, of, of freedom uh, needs to be grounded certainly in whole, uh, holiness, not shoulds and oughts. I, to me, that's a helpful guideline, is that I want to get away from shoulds and oughts, because that's the rigidity uh, in me. Um, and I want to be uh, so in love with Jesus and be intimate in him that my intimate organic relationship with him guides me toward whole holiness as is dictated by the scriptures. The scriptures give me uh, lime on the playing field. And so I'm looking at the scriptures, I'm weighing the scriptures in order to be a guide uh, in order for holiness to emerge from my life. But it's my intimate relationship with Jesus, not my rule keeping, um, that I want to be the umpire. Um, in Galatians chapter three, the scripture says, let peace rule in your heart. And the Greek word there for rule is the same word for umpire. Let the peace of Christ uh, be the umpire. Now that's, that sounds like let your subjective feelings be your guide. And that, that's difficult because it makes us nervous. It's, I'm, I'm a whole lot more comfortable if I've got a rule book and I just follow the rules. But God has intended that, that there be much more of a relational commitment to Jesus than a rule commitment uh, to Jesus. And so his freedom, we are free, free from what people think, free from religion, free from false obligation. People don't like it, don't understand it. They draw false conclusions. They point fingers at us and worse. Um, he is free from all of that. Jesus is, oh, oh, to be free from the law, but to be guided by it. You to turn over to Galatians chapter 2. This is what the Apostle Paul says. And, and I, I'm going to read it off the screen. Bunch um, <laughs> a water bottle there. Uh, because I'm having difficulty with my eyes this morning. Um, Galatians uh, chapter 2. Paul really addresses this because he's in... He's in um, <coughs> Um, somewhat of a uh, debate or tension with um, uh, men who have come into the church and now they're teaching after Paul has led these Galatians uh, to the Lord and they're talking about Jesus plus, Jesus plus. It happened to be circumcision. Well, you need to be circumcised, Jesus plus. And when you start doing Jesus plus, you're out of touch with an intimate relationship with him and now you're adding to it and you're bringing rigidity in. Look at what Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul says. Fourteen years after that first visit, Barnabas and I went up to Jerusalem and took Titus with us. I went to clarify with them what had been revealed to me. At that time, I placed before them exactly what I was preaching to the non-Jews, obviously the Gentiles. I did this in private with the leaders. Isn't that interesting? He, he tried to pull them aside and not make a public spectacle of it do the appropriate thing, those held in the esteem of the church, so that our concern would not become a controversial public issue, marred by ethnic tensions, exposing my years of work to, uh, to get a, a geisha and endangering my present ministry. 
significantly, Titus, non-Jewish though he was, was not required to be circumcised. See, that's what they were saying. It's like, Titus, you're, you're a uh, Gentile, so you've got to be circumcised or you can't be a part of the church. While we were in conference, we were infiltrated by spies pretending to be Christians who slipped in to just find out just how free true Christians are. Their ulterior motive was to reduce us to their brand of servitude, back to enslavement. Isn't this cool? Right, right out of scripture. As for those who were considered important in the church, their reputation doesn't concern me. Wow, you're not concerned? God isn't impressed with mere appearances and neither am I. And of course, these leaders were able to add nothing to the message I had been preaching, add nothing, add nothing. It was soon evident that God had entrusted me with the same message to the non-Jews as Peter had been preaching to the Jews. It's like the same, you know, it's like, you know, one, the Gentiles don't get a different message. And they were teaching that they, these Gentiles had to be circumcised. Recognizing that my calling had been given by God, James, Peter, and John, the pillars of the church, shook hands with me and Barnabas, assigning us to a ministry to the non-Jews while they continued to be responsible for reaching out to the Jews. One gospel to the Gentiles and to the Jews. To be free, to be free. And that's what Jesus has modeled, a scandalous freedom. Just another quote from the book, The Beautiful Outlaw. Uh, you must understand an important distinction. There's Christianity and then there is church culture. They are not the same. Often they are far from the same. The personality conveyed through much of Christian culture is not the personality of Jesus, but of the people in charge of that particular franchise. When you're confronted with something from Christian culture, ask yourself, is this true of the personality of the God of the wind and the desert, the God of sunshine in the open sea? This will dispel truckloads of religious nonsense. That's what Paul is saying. It's, it's so hard many times to separate um, biblical Christianity from cultural mandates. And we're all subject to that. It's so hard. I mean, we live in a wonderful country, but it's so easy to drift um, in our faith to being more culturally sensitive than biblically sensitive. Turn over to Matthew chapter 8, and let's look at a, a, a few examples of just Jesus's incredible freedom and, and his willingness uh, to go against the rigidity uh, of the religious uh, into the culture. Matthew chapter 8, and again, I'm having difficulty with my eyes, so read this. This is, this is an episode um, with a leper um, that um, Jesus encounters. Jesus came down the mountain with the cheers of the crowd still ringing in his ears. And then a leper appeared and went to his knees before Jesus, praying, Master, if you want to, you can heal my body. Again, you know, everybody knows a little bit about leprosy. I mean, visually, it's ugly. Um, to touch a leper 
unclean, unclean. Nobody would dare want to even be in the presence of a leper, much less touching. Watch what Jesus does. Jesus reached out and touched him. Now, you know enough about Jesus. I mean, Jesus, if, if he was going to heal him, he just said, healed, right? Why does Jesus touch him? I think he wanted to throw a skunk in the room. He wanted to show, I'm not going to be bound up by cultural laws. And so he reaches over and he touches the leper as if to say, watch this. Here, hold my wine and watch this. You know, that's what Jesus always said. <laughs> so Jesus reached out and touched him saying, I want to be, I want to be clean. Uh, I, I want to be clean. So he heals it. Then and there, all signs of the leprosy were gone. Jesus said, don't talk about this all over town. Again, because if that happens, uh, Easter will be at Christmas. That's all. He was just trying to get the timeline down. Just quietly present your healed body to the priest, along with the appropriate expressions of thanks to God. Your cleansed and grateful life, not your words, will bear witness to what I've done. Jesus was willing to confront the culture and the religious, the rigid. He touched a leper. So in talking about legalism, um, often when we think of legalism, we think of the petty man-made rules that have so often strangled the churches. Rules against dancing or drinking or makeup or secular music. We could just go on and on with that list. But these legalistic rules are merely an outward sign of a deeper legalism of the heart. When prayer, Bible study, and church attendance are thought of primarily as duties rather than as grace, both prayer and the study of scripture become unfruitful in our lives. We put ourselves on a performance treadmill and cease relying on God's grace to sustain us. If this describes you or anyone you know, the situation is far worse than you think. I, this is, this is, I mean, this, this is what Jesus says about studying scripture. Jesus condemned the Pharisees for this very attitude about Bible study. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me. John 5, 39. Now that's Jesus. That's what he said. Bible study can be a sin. Now, certainly... I, Lord Phil, we're not saying don't study your Bible. That would be stupid. <laughs> but when that becomes the measure, boy, the legalism begins to drift in. Not only into the institution, but certainly into our hearts. It's it's just dangerous. Yeah, it's, you know, it's interesting. I, you know, I read from book of Galatians. I, you know, I love Eugene Peterson, obviously, and I've, I've used uh, for years uh, the message and, you know, 
the message is just a newspaper English, and as I've always said to you, uh, I, I want you to have a message Bible and a study Bible. You know, buy a parallel Bible that has the message on one side so you can understand it in, in just you know, a newspaper English, and then have your study Bible. And the way the message came about is uh, Eugene Peterson was teaching in his church through the book of Galatians, uh, which is a book on uh, legalism, just as I read. And he realized that his uh, church members didn't understand half of what he was reading. And so he sits down to write out the book of Galatians to translate it in more newspaper English. And then he kept going and going and going until the whole, the whole Bible was there. So it's like, uh, it is important that we study our Bibles deeply so that our, our faith has deep roots. And yet, I think it's really important as we begin to read it, then we read it as a letter, that we read it more personally and then get into the study. Because I think when it's reversed, it, it creates rigidity and in, uh, in proudness because now you're you're proud of the knowledge that you're gaining, but you've missed the intimacy. So that's why I use the message as Eugene Peterson does. Two other episodes, just quickly, and then we'll close, in Jesus' life that challenges us into his freedom. He speaks to a Samaritan woman. Guys, this is scandalous. This is scandalous. You know, first of all, the Jews in Judea hated the Samaritans. Now, Samaria was up north. That was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it's like if you were down in Judea in the southern kingdom, you didn't talk to those northerners. I mean, it's really kind of interesting in our culture. You know, we've had this whole the south and the north sort of split very much like Israel. And so Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman, which was uh, bad enough in and of itself. But this woman, even worse, uh, has a bad reputation. There's only one reason why he was up there. Yeah. And what was that one reason, Jeff? Well, what they thought, what, what a normal man would have done in that time. Oh, yeah, exactly. If, if, yeah, as Jeff is saying, there's only one reason that Jesus would have been seen as talking to that woman is that Jesus was, you know, uh, hitting on her, to put it in just newspaper terms. And it's just like, watch this, you know, hold my wine and watch this, Jesus says, you know, a scandalous freedom. But, but Jesus wanted us to understand that he's not afraid to have a relationship with those who are um, thought of um, as scandalous in the culture. He was free, free to love. And he helped this woman to understand that what she did not need was another man. You know, what do you want? I want water. I know, sweetheart, you're not looking for well water. You're looking for living water. And I've got that. And then finally, he breaks the Sabbath. You know, Jesus was continually going against the rigidity of the Sabbath. You can't heal somebody. Um, you can't break the law of the Sabbath. And Jesus said, you know, it's not um, the letter of the law. It's not the rigidity of the law that I want you to follow. I want you to understand the spirit of the law because the spirit of the law is like a yardstick. 
and we hold it up and we don't measure up to the level of holiness uh, because we can't do that by our performance. And Jesus says, you know, I've come to give you a righteousness that your behavior, your performance cannot yield. It is by grace. Receive me and live out an intimate, holy relationship with me. God never says he'll be glorified in our religious accomplishments and self-made righteousness. But he does promise that his power will be made perfect in our weakness. Neediness is the heart of real biblical truth. When we honestly lay our brokenness before God, we're surprised to see a radically different message in the Bible. While we had perhaps expected a to-do list from on high, a program to make us righteous, or a divinely sanctioned self-help book, we instead see a shocking message that centers on our God and his grace to his broken people. Not about our performance and expected rewards. And when we approach God in brokenness, real Christianity, we find a radically different paradigm of walking with God and true freedom in Christ. Excellent. Guys, I would just finish uh, with this. Um, never, never, never come before God based on your performance. Don't do that. Never stand before a group or sit before a group based on your performance. I, I would never come up here um, based on my performance. You know, I've had a good week, so I think I can teach men's roundtable this week. <laughs> Dude, I, there, there is never a time that I don't sit before you, stand before you, and feel unworthy, uh, very unworthy. And when we first started, um, many of you know this story, um, I was fearful, fearful that somebody would stand up over here or over here and say, Phil, we know who you are. You're not who you proclaim to be. And that was an anxiety that I had. Um, and I've had to learn that if I'm going to sit before you, stand before you, do my best to offer uh, my witness to what Jesus has done in my life, then it's going to be on his terms, not my performance. I sit before you this morning as a broken man, as a man who is free in Jesus to simply proclaim him in spite of my performance. May you be free in him. It's close. Father, I thank you uh, so much for what you've done in my heart, what you've done in my life to allow me to sit before these men uh, so broken uh, myself uh, before a group of broken men. And you freely offered to us uh, the gospel, the good news that we have been forgiven in Christ, that Christ died for us, that we might be free to set us free. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for this morning and for your word and for Jesus in whose name we pray. Amen. Have a great week.